Well, we were worshiping along with Nell as she played, and so grateful for that, that theme in the power of the cross. If you have a, um, a prayer slip or a visitor slip, if you'd pass that to the aisle, we will collect those and pray for you this week. And let's open our swords to Romans chapter 3. If you're new, uh, visiting with us this morning, uh, we're in the ser- a series on the book of Romans that'll take us to um, about Thanksgiving time. And we'll take a break for Christmas and then pick up with uh, Romans 4 at the beginning of the year. But this has been really our focus this year in Romans 1 through 3, which is the Apostle Paul's effort to communicate why we need salvation. And that is because all of us have fallen short of God's glory because we're sinners by nature and by choice. And God's response to that is uh, the wrath of God has been revealed. And so this is not uh, a chipper subject where uh, we tend to want to gravitate to topics like this. And by design, I've made the pace slow uh, so we can think about these things seriously. And I want to introduce a term that you may not be familiar with. You probably have never used it in a conversation in your life, but it's found in the Bible and it's an important theological word in order to understand the meaning of Jesus's death, life, death, and resurrection. And it's the word propitiation. Timothy George once wrote that the cross was neither an accident of history nor a divine emergency measure There was a cross in the heart of God from all eternity. We read in the Bible that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And in Romans chapter 3, this one paragraph that we've said is probably uh, one of the most important paragraphs in all of the Bible, captures the depth of what God has done through Jesus Christ. In our study of Romans, we come to one of the most important statements as we look at Jesus, his death, what it accomplished for us, namely our redemption, to be reconciled with God, to be justified, to be declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven, to be adopted as a son of God, to know God's forgiveness and that our sins have been taken away, and all the spiritual blessings that come to us in Jesus Christ. And so, the importance of doctrine. So, maybe if someone were to say, why did the pastor talk on propitiation today? What relevance does that have to my life? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I thought of what Paul said to young Timothy when he admonished him at 1 Timothy 4, and he said, Uh, Pay attention to the public reading of the scriptures. And then he says in chapter 4, verse 16, keep close watch on your life and your doctrine. Because what you believe drives how you live. And so we're a church that believes in the authority of scripture, the inerrancy of scripture, the light of scripture. And so when we come to a word, it matters. And when we look at Romans 3.25, which will be our focus this morning, the text reads, whom God put forward as a propitiation for our, blood, uh, for our sins, forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So what you have here is a conflict, a dilemma in the heart of God. How how can he declare his glory in his righteousness? And how can he forgive sinners? And the answer is found in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We'll discover in our journey this morning that propitiation really addresses how Jesus turned away God's wrath towards sinners that we would be received and forgiven and redeemed. This was a transaction on the cross. Why many commentators refer to Romans 3, 21 through 26 as the inner meaning of the cross. And I believe to be an important message for us today to remember what our Savior accomplished for us. And I'm going to end this message with a trip to Calvary. And to look at one of the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. And it is this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, propitiation was was taking place. God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus so we would not have to bear it for eternity that we might know the mercy and forgiveness and love of God. Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So let's ask first, why is this good news for me? Propitiation? Why is this good news for me? Well, words again matter and they have meaning. When we come to a a verse like this, we just don't blow it off and, and go to something we think is more important. Words have meaning. If we're going to be faithful to the Bible, we must affirm the holiness of God's anger. God's wrath is a reality. In fact, this whole argument, going back to chapter 1, verse 18, is Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he's unpacking what, the, what this means. We have broken God's laws. We have rebelled against his precepts. And sometimes we look around and we wonder, you know, where's the world going? Why does it seem to be spiraling out of control? I thought of the statement by Alexander Solzhenitsyn when he said, commenting on the Russian Revolution, all this happened because men... For, have forgotten God. All of, this is for, all of this has happened because men have forgotten God. And we see that all around us in one form or another. Thomas Schreiner, a reliable New Testament commentator, uh, said that God's wrath here is not primitive, arbitrary, or capricious, but it is his holy righteousness, righteous response to human sin. So propitiation is turning that wrath which abides on us apart from Christ. It's a turning of that wrath by the sinless death of Jesus. God's wrath was satisfied through the death of Christ. Now, earlier in our study, I brought to your attention um, an issue with a a mainline denomination back in 2013, and they were selecting hymns for their hymnal, and uh, they wanted to include the hymn in Christ alone. 
And um, they were troubled by a stanza, though, and, uh, in that hymn, and they petitioned the songwriter, uh, songwriters, Keith Getty and Richard, uh, Stuart Townen, uh, requesting permission to change the lyrics of the hymn. Uh, the line that troubled them was, on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Well, they didn't like that. And so they said, hey, can we change this to on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Well, that's a little more palatable to 21st century sensibilities. But to their credit, words have meaning. And Keith Getty and Stuart Townend said, no, <laughs> no, you can't change our hymn. So what they were vying for was this removal of sin, expiation, and many, we see many theological streams in the 20th century in particular, rejecting this idea of propitiation. Propitiation is not, is not something that's received by all streams of Christianity, and I think that's a mistake. I think it's an error. It's a Bible word. What does it mean? It means that Christ satisfied the wrath of God against us. But many reject that because they they want to just, the sin has been removed from us. Not, not that God has been satisfied. And so the idea in their mind is that this goes back to pagan rituals where you, you propitiate the God so he, you throw an offering at him so he will get off your back and won't hound your steps. Um, but I think it's interesting when it talks about propitiation here, are we propitiating God? Are we bringing an offering or a sacrifice to somehow satisfy his, uh, his anger? No. God is propitiating himself through the work of his son. We don't, we don't propitiate him. I think I may have shared with you when we, Gwen and I were in China. I believe it was for Esther's adoption. We went to a Buddhist temple. And um, I just was reminded of how religions of the world bring sacrifices to their gods. And um, one of the Buddhist priests brought out this big platter of fruit and nuts and put it before the Buddha to feed the Buddha. We came back a couple hours later and Buddha didn't eat. And so I just was reminded that many of the religions of the world, it's we've got to propitiate our God. We've got to do, go through a, a ritual of things in order to get him off of our back so he won't be angry and things might go well for us. That's not the God of the Bible. We're never commanded to offer a sacrifice. To, we can't. All we have to offer him is brokenness and strife. God propitiated himself through the work of his son. That's the gospel. Yes, our sins were taken away, but God was satisfied once and for all through the death of his son. In this theological taffy pull, I think something very damaging has come into the minds of people that even conversations like the one we're having this morning, truths that we're talking about now, something very damaging in my view, and that is many theologians assign God's wrath to an impersonal cause and effect. Sin is the cause of disaster and as a consequence, 
And so it kind of removes the feel that God is somehow angry. But that's exactly how the Bible describes him. That's what wrath means. You know, I found it interesting. There are over 580 references to the wrath of God in, in, the, in the Bible. 580. And we're going to go through all 580 this morning. No, I'm just kidding. 580 references to God's wrath in the Bible. What are we, what are we to do with that? Say that it's not true? There are 20 Hebrew words that convey God's wrath. We won't go through each one of those either. But let me just give you a little sampling. Nahum. When's the last time you read Nahum? Be honest. Hopefully this year. Nahum 1.6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Friends, if you read the, the, the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, it's a, it's a scene of judgment and fire and brimstone, which is an eternal punishment because sin is an eternal transgression. Isaiah 30, behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke, his lips are of are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. What do you do when you read this? Dismiss it out of hand? That's the God of the Old Testament. He was grumpy, but Jesus came on the scene, and now he's nicer? A thousand times no. The God of the Old Testament is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a consistent theme. And then John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, he hops up on the stump and he says to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bearing fruit, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But I would want you just to keep your mark here. And would you turn with me to John 3? Not to John 3.16. That's a wonderful sum of the gospel. We proclaim it gladly. And with great hope that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Not John 3.16, but John 3.36. This is in the Gospel of John. Don't zone out, please. Stay with me here. I want you to see this consistent theme. In verse 36, whoever... Believes in the Son has eternal life. Isn't that a wonderful declaration this morning? You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you have a, you, you're a possessor of eternal life now. Eternal life does not begin when you die. Eternal life begins in this life right now with a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on him. When? Now. Now. So are you saying, Pastor, that someone who is living in unbelief, someone who is living in rebellion to God, someone who's rejected the gospel... That the wrath of God 
remains on them now? I think that's the clear teaching of this verse, don't you? But it seems to be going so well for them. We should not evaluate truth by what we see in this world. To be apart from God, to be lost in our sins, means that that is the destiny. The wrath of God remains on him. And we could look at Revelation 6, which speaks of the kings of the earth, of the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free. They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks. What did they say? Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And the answer is no one. Is God really angry? Oh, we could go 580 times to verify that fact from the Scripture. But that's not all that He is. God presents Him, the first and best of beings. The Bible presents Him as a God who is infinite in mercy. God publicly displayed Christ as a propitiation And so this is good news to those who receive it, to those who cast their soul upon Jesus Christ because we're not condemned in him. What relief can I know in my life from this? And the answer is by faith in Jesus Christ. So propitiation, that's really good news. Notice with me secondly, why does God need to demonstrate his righteousness? Now you might not have thought of that, I I think no one in the modern world probably thinks of this. Why does God need to demonstrate his righteousness? Often people, when they view God, they view him in such a way that he owes us salvation. He owes us forgiveness. In fact, truth be known, he's responsible for all this misery. He created it all, didn't he? Which I think is jaded. Why does God need to demonstrate his righteousness? That's what it says here in verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness. God put forward his son, Jesus Christ, as a propitiation by his blood to show his righteousness because of his divine forbearance. This is why. Because of his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. I want to explain that. Prior to the cross, Paul is saying God passed over former sins? Why would this come to bear on the righteousness of God? Why does God need to show his righteousness? C.S. Lewis once said, some people see the Father in in heaven as a senile grandfather who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. But God isn't a senile grandfather. He's the supreme sovereign of the universe. A student once asked Bonaventure, the medieval Franciscan teacher, why don't men love God God more? And he answered, they don't love him because they don't know him. That's the way I feel about Christ today. 
In the forbearance of God, he passed over these sins. His need to vindicate his righteousness is all about his glory. So what do we mean by former sins? What do we mean by this? And again, I don't think, apart from divine revelation, we would never even think about this. But we feel the dilemma God was dealing with in the cross When most of us would not lose any sleep over apparent unrighteousness of God's kindness to sinners, no one would doubt what would happen to a judge, would we? No one would doubt what would happen to a judge who says to a convicted criminal, it's okay, I forgive you, you're you're free to go. They would not be on the bench for very long. They would be removed. The judge of all the world, he does right. And according to Romans, this is the most basic problem that God God solved by the death of his son. God would look and God would be unrighteous if he passed over sins as though the value of his glory were nothing. Wayne Grudem said, although it was not necessary that God save any people at all, in his love he chose to save some. Once he made that decision, God's justice made it necessary for Christ to live the life he lived and the death that he died. And we see his grace even to those who spurn it. But God could have brought justice by punishing all sinners all of us, to hell. He was not under obligation to save any of us. It would be a just penalty for the dishonor we bring to his glory. But again, God's not just angry. (laughs) He's so much more. John 3, 17, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He's a God of mercy and grace. So in his divine forbearance, what does that mean? In his patience, he passed over sins previously committed prior to the cross that he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? I beg for you to follow me here because as we go to the Old Testament, we read in Psalm 103, He did not deal with us according to our sins. The psalmist is saying this before Calvary. He did not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. He's passed over millions of sins. He's been forgiving them and letting them go and not punishing them. Now, how often we come to King David in his notorious behavior with Bathsheba, committing adultery, having having her husband Uriah murdered, And when Nathan the prophet comes to David, after living months in the backwash of his sin, we get insight into his misery when he says in in Psalm 32, David says, my bones, my, my flesh withered away when I kept silent about my sin. And so Nathan says to David, why have you despised the word of the Lord? And David says, I've sinned against God. And Nathan said to him, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. There's an example of God's forbearance. 
overlooking sins previously committed to Calvary? And I can imagine, you know, when we're done wrong, how we struggle with that. What do you mean he's forgiven? What do you mean he's forgiven? He committed adultery. He committed murder. He needs to pay. And our sense of justice cries out, there is no way you call yourself a just God. Didn't you say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Yes, he did. But that was given to, to, to guide the laws of Israel, not personal grievances. Why? <laughs> We've often noted, we take an eye for a head, don't we? We take an entire limb for a tooth. But Nathan doesn't says, say that. He, he says, the Lord has put away your sins All sin is despising of God before it is a damage to a man. All sin is a preference for the love of the things of the flesh in this world. Christ came to earn our salvation because of God's faithful love and justice. The psalmist said that at the cross that righteousness and justice kissed. God solving that dilemma in only a way he could by sending his son to propitiate his anger towards sin and sinners. Now, I, I said we'd end this message by going to the Gospels, and we will, going to um, um, Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. So Jesus is gone through the pain of Gethsemane, where he felt the weight of the burden of the sin that he would bear, and he has felt the sting of Peter's denial and the false trials. He's gone before Pilate. He's heard the crowd uh, Choose Barabbas, a notorious criminal, over him. Philip Yancey notes that of the biographies that I've read, few devote more than 10% of the pages to the subject's death. Whether it be Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi or whomever who died violent and politically significant deaths. The Gospels, however devote nearly a third of their length to the death of Jesus, obviously seeing the death of Jesus as the central mystery of what, what he came to do. And so he poured out his heart, and we see in Matthew twenty-seven forty-five. now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So that's nine o'clock in the morning, or excuse, he was on the cross from nine o'clock in the morning to three o'clock in the afternoon. The sixth hour was noon in the, in the Hebrew clock. It was noon. So from noon to 3 p.m., darkness was all over the land until the ninth hour. I'm reminded of the plague of darkness in, in, in the Exodus, where it's, it says in, in Exodus that the darkness could be felt. So... 
It became midnight at midday when Jesus suffered on the cross. You think something was going on there? You think payment was being made when the whole earth is dark at noon? And about the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. In Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Propitiation's the answer. That was the requirement that resolves the dilemma God faced, namely to uphold his righteousness and for his mercy to be extended to sinners through the death of his son. He took our place. He bore our sins. He absorbed the wrath of God within him so that we would not have to absorb it. And so in this scene from the gospel, the truth is that when he died, do you remember the veil in the temple was torn in two? This massive tapestry in the temple communicated, stay out. Sinners cannot enter into the presence of the holy God except by the prescribed way of a high priest only certain times in a year. The temple, the, the veil was torn in two and sinners have access to the God who has created us and who has redeemed us and has propitiated himself for us. Do we need forgiveness for our sins, peace through our trials, comfort in our losses, wisdom as we face the decisions of this life, hope to face the future? Yes, of course. Strength for daily life, to stay on course, times of temptation, of course. This paragraph in Romans 3 gives us such hope. We've done a lot of talking about the anger of God this morning. I would close with one reference that, that brings the love of God and propitiation together. And it's 1 John 4. And I would, I would invite you to turn there. We'll close this with this and move right to the Lord's table. 1 John 4.10. The Apostle John didn't think the love of God and the wrath of God were opposed uh, to each other. It's the love of God that sent the Son of God into the world to propitiate the wrath of God so that we can become sons and daughters of God. Do you see how that flows together? 1 John 4, in this magnificent text, look at verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, we haven't, but that he loved us and sent his son to be what? The propitiation for our sins. What a masterful bringing together of these important attributes of God. The love of God sent forth his son to be a propitiation to satisfy his wrath that we might know all the fullness of God in salvation. Apart from him, there is no salvation. The hands of Christ seem very frail, for they were broken by a nail. 
but only they reach heaven at last, whom these frail, broken hands hold fast. I pray that that would be true of you. And when you come to this word in your Bible reading, you would remember another aspect of the inner meaning of the cross, that God's wrath has been satisfied against you and that you have free access to him. And with that, everything the Lord's table communicates comes back to these themes. Jared, would you lead us?